Welcome back to the Original Gangsters Podcast. I'm Jimmy Bucciolato here in studio with my partner in crime and co-conspirator, Scott Bernstein. Hey, now. The intrepid Mr. Scott Bernstein. I uh, just want to remind everyone, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please uh, subscribe to our podcast. We're on Spotify, Pandora, Google, um, anywhere you find. Um, share it, like it. Please, yeah. It's really important Amplify that you spread it. the word on social media and, and subscribe. It, it helps a lot in terms of getting making people more aware of, of what we do. And uh, we're really happy, excited about today's episode. Uh, we've had a lot of audience members clamoring for us to do an episode on organized crime in Canada. A lot of hot news right now coming out of Canada. So uh, we, we're... Uh, Just like always, we're going right to the source. Right to the source we're right. cutting through all the filler. We're cutting through all that fat. And we're going right to the OG's OG when it comes to reporting on organized crime activity in Canada, Peter Edwards. Yeah, so we're, we're uh, uh, happy to have uh, a Montreal reporter, writer, Peter Edwards. He's the author of uh, The Wolf Pack. And uh, this book came out recently, the the millennial mobsters who brought chaos and the cartels to the Canadian underworld, and another book that our audience is probably familiar with, Business or Blood, uh, Mafia Boss Vito Rizzuto's Last War. So, Peter, welcome to our show. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, we appreciate your time and 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 uh, your patience. We we're having some technical difficulties getting started here, but we appreciate your patience. Um, there's a lot we want to talk to you about, but I, I, I think we should just get right into right away the latest breaking news. Uh, recently, uh, what has it been, two weeks now? Yeah. Uh, Leonardo Rizzuto, the, the heir apparent, the son, Tevito. The reputed uh, boss of right, the, the uh, Rizzuto crime left family. Of, yeah. Right. The, there was an assassination attempt. I think it was eight shots, something like that. So let's start with that, Peter. Tell us what went down there and and. Give us your sense of what's going on in the Montreal underworld surrounding this assassination attempt. Um, one of the names that's been mentioned a lot, and there was a uh, search warrant at his house on March um, 29th, along with uh, warrants at a bunch of Hells Angels, is a guy, uh, Chip Del Balso, uh, Francesco Del Balso. He had been a, a big deal in the old Rizzuto family. He went to prison for an 11 year term. He. Um, a uh, tough guy with a very, very bad temper, and um, he's the same age as Leonardo Rizzuto, and the feeling is that uh, those two just weren't getting along. There had been an attempt on his life in November, and he was kind of he's kind of a skittish, angry guy to begin with, and he has been more skittish and more angry since the attempt on his life, and um, he's nowhere to be found now when police um, served his place find him was apparently confiscated in in late march before the raid and um he's just taken off um so one of the rumors is that he's in amsterdam there are there's talk about a huge bounty on his head and um and he's probably a lot more jittery now so is this one of those things like if you take a shot at the king and you don't and you don't make it, and you miss. You better, <laughs> you better run and duck, right? Yeah, get out, of, get out of town, or else use the second bullet on yourself. Yeah, like it's. Um, uh, what's interesting about him is there like the Criminal Intelligence Service of Organized Crime Report. They have him as being very close to really senior Hell's Angels, and in fact, the the Hell's Angels are kind of the same level as the mob. Um, like they're, they used to be the guys who did the dirty jobs, and now they're 
there at a decision-making level. And so he's been considered um, very, very close to the bikers and moving away from the um, old mafia stuff a little more. Peter, uh, excuse my um, ignorance here, but I don't remember news reports back in late 22 of Del Basso avoiding um, a hit. Was that something that got a lot of publicity? Uh, Not really, because they didn't hit anything. Like, it it was just, um, you know, vehicle damage. And and so um, uh, that that kind of surfaced later when he got back in the news again. Okay. So um, he he, he kind of had faded away and then, like, he was someone who was thought of as, um, you know, 2011 or before that. Back in... um, in around 2006, he was one of the considered the top six who were running things in on the mafia side of things in, in Montreal. So he's mentioned in business or blood a few times. Uh, do we know? I mean, what what kind of ranking would he have? Was he a, was he a captain? Or I'm not sure what's going on in Montreal right now. If they hit, even use the same distinctions and categories that they use other Cosa Nostra families. Yeah. See, I, I don't think the titles really count for that much anymore. And the um, uh, but he would have been second tier, but then the six of the second tier guys all shared the first tier while they're waiting for Vito Rizzuto to get out. So he, and that would have been when he was in his early 30s. So he was kind of a, a not a boy wonder, but kind of close. Um, then he he got in trouble. His brother got pinched in the states with more than 50 kilos of cocaine. So um, his power fell, and he. Um, um, just move closer to the Hells Angels. The Hells Angels are a lot more cohesive or speed more cohesive. Yeah, so if he's close to the Hells Angels, is is law enforcement sense that politically they would be backing his move, or is it too early to say? Um, it's early to say, and then that Hells Angels also, I mean, there are a lot of divisions, like there, there are a lot of little charters that, Sometimes work together, sometimes don't. And there's, they haven't really had someone who's tried to be the leader for 20 years, and that didn't go well, like with Mom Bouchard. And they're, they're not guys who take instruction all that well. So um, they, they'll work together when it makes sense. But it, it's like a lot of different um, um, sort of staff of equal guys. And BC, the Hells Angels, are quite a big deal. And some of them have popped up in Montreal, um, kind of on their own little islands. Now, in the past, the Rizzuto Mafia was aligned with the Hells Angels. So if you're reading the tea leaves here, as I think Jimmy was starting to drill down on, is this telling us now that Leonardo Rizzuto doesn't have the relationship with the Hells Angels that his father did and that possibly a former ally of him and his father has now uh, somehow... um, you know, brought the Hell's Angels over to, you know, his side of the fence and is now going after the Rizzuto crown? I mean, would that be an accurate description of, of the, the things that are at play in I this think that's a fair power dynamic? And, and, yeah, I think that's a fair way to read it. And since um, in the last 20 years, since the heyday of Peter Rizzuto, when he was at the top of the pyramid, things are a lot more um, horizontal to the power. Like there's a lot more moving parts. and you can't really point at one or two people and say they're on top. There are a lot of um, groups, um, and some of them are out of um, British Columbia on the West Coast, but they're um, 
There's the Wolfpack Alliance. There's the United Nations and their um, under 35 um, gangsters who are very impatient but have, have reasonably good ties to um, to cartels in Mexico. So they, if you can make the connection to them, you can jump all this um, waiting your turn in line and you know working your way up stuff. You can move up really quickly. You can be in your 20, late 20s and be a big deal. You don't have these larger-than-life bosses anymore like Mambouche or Vito Rizzuto and things seem to have really become they decentralized. Tur- things turned quick. Yeah. I mean th- really quick. Yeah. yeah. Well maybe speak and to that how things went from kind of the definition of stability, at least after the uh big Quebec biker war, before Vito uh, is extradited to the United States, it, it looked like you know Vito had created this blueprint of how to keep everybody happy and mm-hmm. and have alliances that are uh you know checks and balances on each other and then you know peter you you've been out at the front lines in ground zero of reporting this and i don't think the public would know as much as we know if it wasn't for people like yourself um it, it all unraveled pretty rapidly um so can you kind of take us through some of that like what what was the point in time that you that you saw or you read the tea leaves in in your mind in your reporting? Was it early on when Vito was having his legal problems, or was it when bodies started to drop? Um, my feeling is that it was around 2010 when the weren't afraid of the Hell's Angels and weren't afraid of the mob and could pull some of them into their own own enterprises, and so. A guy from a group called the Wolfpack Alliance, he, Robbie Ocalil, he moved to Montreal uh, around 2011, and he brought with him a Hells Angel from D.C., and he's a lot more um, um, internet-based, a lot more um, multi-ethnic, and I think just like um, the internet's changed all these other businesses, you know, the news business, it's changed that immeasurably, it also changed organizing, and these guys are uh, live off the internet and they very tight with Mexico and they bypass everything in between. So when you, when you say they're really good with the internet, like you mean in terms of communicating with each other or their actual crimes or both? Um, both. And they don't need a geographic base. It used to be, you could point to a neighborhood and say, which group controlled it. Now these guys don't care about the neighborhood. Like Al Khalil broke out of jail, um, last summer and no nobody nobody outside of his family I think has a clue where he is and it really doesn't matter because he can communicate on the dark web with everybody anyway. So but wouldn't you say that the that the rackets have changed like so to an extent so if geography is less important like like with the old Rizzuto family, they didn't just control narcotics. They they had interest in construction rackets and um, you know, Gam- gambling, even local gambling, prostitution, you know, right? So, what about those traditional rackets? Are these are these new age, uh, new media gangsters? Are, are are they able to get into those rackets, or is that still more the maybe the Hell's Angels and Italians? Um, they they have to do something to wash their money. Like I've been talking to a guy in witness protection who he was making all this money, and he had to explain why he had it. So then he bought into tow trucks. He bought into um, cannings. 
sponsored into sports memorabilia, which kind of makes you wonder how authentic that stuff was. But he, <laughs> like they put it into a business. The old traditional mafia guys are homes for construction. Um, they're still um, better at corruption. The younger one don't don't have the um, the person at city hall. You know, they don't have the person in charge of zoning, but they they do have um, wads of money, and so. If the mafia guys can swallow their pride, they can they can work with them. Yep, Peter. Uh, if if uh, you don't feel comfortable ask, uh, answering this question, it's okay. But I want to throw it out there. Uh, how many personal interactions did you have with Vito Rizzuto? Um, I, to be honest, like he, um, I had them around him, but I didn't have him. I had. Um, uh, Joe DiMaolo, I talked to him before he got murdered. I I get a bit around here, but Vito Vito wasn't um, accessible. Wasn't a talker. Okay. Uh, he talked a little bit when he was heading off to the airport um, um, with a with a friend of mine, but um, uh, he was quite smart about it. I've had um, interactions with with guys in his orbit, uh, guys who can't um, control their temper as well. Right. Um, I've had an interaction with Vito's brother-in-law, which wasn't wasn't um, sort of friendly. But are you talking uh, about Demal? Are you talking about Demalo? Uh, no, Demalo was actually quite friendly and quite quite charming. There's a guy Frank Campoli, who uh, Vito's brother-in-law, who um, you know told me I was disgusting and wasn't so crazy about my work. <laughs> but so. but smiling Joe Demalo was one of the. Uh, casualties in this war, and he was very close to Rizzuto. Didn't he have some uh, connection through marriage? Yeah, he uh, he was married into the family, and he um he was funny because I just dropped in on his office, and I um he was an odd one, but um I had a taxi that took me there, and I told the guy, you know, wait as long as you have to. I don't care how high the meter goes, and my French, yeah, he, like I was hoping it was getting through to him, but I, I didn't want to um. You know, leave his office in a hurry, no, no car waiting for me. Um, but he was he was friendly. He um, very very confident guy, and he uh, felt that he could talk his way out of things. He had a, a guy who looked like he's from the WWF in the background watching everything. But he um, um, he, he was quite personable. I, um, I was actually sad when he got shot. Do you believe that his murder was for betraying Vito, or was it for backing Vito? I um it's a good question. I don't I I don't I don't know, but I don't think it takes too much either way. Okay. Like I think once you think someone might be doing something then um it's they're they're pretty quick up here now and I think a lot quicker um in the last couple of years to just accuse someone of, of talking and then shoot them and then that way you you up the ladder yourself. So it's um it's sort of this honor among thieves that doesn't go all that far. So let me ask you something. This is something just I talk about casually with Scott and, and audience members and other people. I just think of the, the numbers that I think about so many guys getting whacked. It's so it's mind blowing <laughs> when you take a step back. Right. What's happened in the last 15 years. I'm not trying to jump into Jimmy's point here, but I mean, it, it really is. It's surreal to think in this yeah. Day and age. There's no parallel in the United States that for you Italians. would have, uh, uh, you know, triple figures in terms of a body count. 
Yeah, can you, can yeah, you un- it, unpack, like, just give us a sense of scale, our, our audience members, uh, of the violence there? At one point, there was a, a biker war between the Hells Angels and something called the Rock Machine, which morphed into the Banditos. And at the peak of their war, about um, a little over 20 years ago, they accounted for 17% of the province of Quebec's murder rate. They, and, they, and at that point, there were, I think, 115 guys in the Hells Angels. So, I mean, that shows how, how lively they were. I covered one trial where uh, people were charged with 13 murder conspiracies. Like, like that count was quite high. And it's, um, I forget who sang it, but there was a song a long time ago, Paranoia Will Destroy You. And, and everybody got paranoid and started shooting at everybody. And, and it spread into Ontario. Like there were eight um, bandito bikers who were, were murdered all one night. Um, and, and again, it was just paranoia. Once, once you think someone's talking about you, um, you're in trouble. The guy I'm, into protection. He he said that he could accept it when his enemies wanted to kill him, but then when police showed him his friends wanted to kill him too, that's when he snapped. Like they um and they now they're GPSing each other's cars and so they're they're kind of they know where people are and that paranoia level is just ramped right up. How many would you say in the the Rizzuto Wars in the last uh what has it been, fifteen years? How, how Roughly many, fifteen years. Yeah, how many how many what would you say? How many casualties, roughly? Uh, I just don't. To be honest, I just don't know because some of them. Um, I wouldn't want to guess. I know the um, this guy Al Khalil. He was by the time he was about thirty. He was early thirties. Instead of two murders, but he was picked up on um, uh, intercepts as talking about his best hitter and his. You know, like it was a very um, business-like thing, and he. Um, um, the the less stable it is, the more violent it is. Like it's sort of odd, but um, with with Vito Rizzuto and his heyday, um, uh, things were stable, and it was basically criminal shooting criminals for a, a logical reason. Um, now there's a lot of um, of paranoia and there's a lot of contracting out too it's sort of odd but a lot of these like the the fact that we've talked about two attempted hits where the guy wasn't killed uh, a long time ago i talked to a guy named real samard who used to kill people for the catroni family who were the big family before the Rizzutos, and he um he talked he killed five people and or was convicted of five and he he said he'd walk up to him and the guy would like people would accept it when he walked towards them and then he'd shoot them in the um, in the middle of the torso, so they drop, and then you put one behind the ear, and that was the way he was told to do it, and it was very traditional. Now, nobody trusts anyone enough to get out of their cars, and so you have all these drive-bys that, that don't really work. You know, it's really also, straight. they kind of oh. cheaped out. Go ahead, Peter, I'm sorry. Cheaped out on their, they kind of cheaped out on their hit teams, too. Like, they contract out to 17-year-old kids who don't get the job done. Wow. And it's really striking, Scott, the fact that Peter doesn't even know. Yeah, that, that tell that no, no. it's not like oh well three or four. Like the fact no, that he, a, that he's not even confident to give you a number because there's so there's the so scale. many moving parts here. I mean, yeah. you have and then alliances that are birthing other alliances yeah. and you know kind of defining that axiom where your enemy's enemy is your friend. And I mean, Peter, tell me if I'm wrong, though, and I'm interested in, in your 
insight. And we'll, again, when we kind of trace it back to the 2000s and a lot of this, Again, tell me if you're the expert, so I don't want to be speaking out of, uh, out of school here. But a lot of this, to, in, in my uh, kind of amateur analysis of this from someone who doesn't consider myself an expert on Canadian organized crime, but has read all the books and has followed um, kind of the blow by blow here. But it seems like when Desjardins decided that it was okay to go against Rizzuto, it was like that opened up a floodgate almost where it was like, well, if someone that was as close to him as Desjardins is going to turn on him and, and try to usurp his authority when he's in prison, then, you know, kind of all bets are off, right. uh, you know, on the, on the, in the whole country. Yeah. And it's almost like um, football in the USFL came in when the NFL was still, you know, strong, but you have, People recruiting people to other other groups, like it's a um, uh, this Wolfpack stuff. I mean, it sounds childish, it really is effective. And the United Nations and these groups kind of they pop up as alliances and they um, uh, do big things, and then they get caught or killed, and another one pops up in their place. And so the the old patient um, mafia. A way of doing things just isn't the way it is now, and the um, uh, the mafia guys like to go home to a nice quiet dinner. You know, they like they like their kid to go to pharmacy school. They like or law school. They like sort of um, non chaos. And the the guy I've been talking to, he said that, and he's in his thirties. He said that everybody he knew was either in prison or killed. Like it's a once the paranoia takes off, it really takes off. Like once you don't trust your friend and once you, every time there's a bust, they assume there's some rat. So who's the rat? And if, um, if someone, if a hell's angel does something wrong, then who sponsored him? Are they guilty too? Like you get the paranoia really does take off. And I mean, even to your point, I mean, Leonardo Rizzuto, I don't believe 20 years ago, uh, Vito Rizzuto would have said, I want Leonardo Rizzuto to, to go into the life and become a boss. He kind of became a, it was kind of like a Michael, Michael Corleone, Corleone yeah, situation. Right. Where Leonardo Rizzuto, tell me if, again, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is an attorney, right? It threw me for a loop because his sister's an attorney too, and it threw me for a loop to um, to realize, yeah, he's 53 years old now. I mean, he's not he's not the little kid running around, and um, he, the godfather, um, it is sort of that, you know, where you know, that's Michael. Yeah. And um, it it is it is kind of chilling. I mean, but Vito had to wait until he was 66 to get the top job. And um, uh, it, it's funny because there are a lot of old grudges out of that stuff. There's a family, the Violis and Hamilton, who um, the previous generation or two generations ago of Rizzuto's killed off the um, Violi men, but the sons are now some of them have gotten into a pretty fair bit of trouble, and so um, they're, they're just a lot of lot of moving pieces, and nobody really knows what's going on. And there absolutely is no one person at the top. There's, there's not even five people at the top. I don't think. You mentioned the Violis. Um, are the Calabrians still players in Montreal? And by Calabrians, I mean the the uh, Andragata. And, um, they're they're considered more Ontario and. They considered um, a little bit west of, of 
Toronto, Niagara region, um, going down towards Buffalo, and then north of Toronto, which is a um, a wealthy new development area. And there, there's a bit of mixture, but not that much. It's sort of odd because those ones don't mix that well. But um, some of the there's one guy from um, from the Sicilian group in Montreal, like with the um, um, Rizzuto group, who gets along just fine with this Wolfpack Alliance, who um, um, gets along with uh, multi-ethnic criminals. He, you know, can get bossed around. Um, a guy from the Mideast is bossing him around, and he seems to to be able to live with that. So, but they they don't mix well with with another group from Italy. It's it's funny the different level of grudges. Yeah. What what do you what do you make of the news that Violi is uh, a Canadian guy is the underboss in an American, uh, you know, a U.S. mafia family, but, specifically Buffalo. Yeah, that's that's a. Um, I dug around on that one, and I just don't. I, to be honest, I, I I just don't know. I had a odd experience where um, about thirty years ago, I was speaking, and he was in the crowd, and I didn't know he was in the crowd, and his mother got really angry, and um, and then he was just staring at me, and <laughs> he's. <laughs> it was kind of a weird feeling because the person I was with, um, um, I was speaking, he made some smart comment and I thought you idiot you know like we um like you know who's in front of us right now and um uh, it's a pretty serious thing I mean the whole generation of that family got shot and his mother um you know really loved um Paulo Violi her husband and she um never got over it and so uh, it's odd but some of these some people can um work better with a total outsider than they can with someone from a couple hundred miles away in Italy. I know that's a roundabout way of saying it, but with with Buffalo geographically, it makes sense. Um, ethnically, it doesn't quite as much because Buffalo, the way I read it, is more Sicilian. Um, but on the other hand, Buffalo is a great place to bring things through. Everybody wants to bring drugs from Chicago and trucks with hidden compartments up through Niagara, winding through Buffalo, and then Hamilton, Toronto, Montreal. It's a pretty lucrative corridor for for organized crime. Now, are there any Catronis left in Montreal? I believe so. Isn't there someone left in the Rizzuto organization? Um, there's not big players like that. Family's kind of gone, and then the um, the guy who was kind of um, flying the flag for them in Toronto was a guy named Eddie Mello, and he was a, a really good boxer who um, was was murdered about 20 years ago, and. But that was kind of the last gasp of, of the Catronis being any kind of meaningful power. Did, let me ask you something. Um, we, if you've paid attention here, you, you know about the, about, what was it, uh, around the same time that Vito Rizzuto was sent to a United States prison to finish off his sentence for the three Coppola's murders from, from the Bonanno crime family. And you know, that you saw in Donnie Brasco back in 81. Um, this coincides with uh, Salvatore Montaigne coming from <laughs> New York, uh, from the Bronx to, uh, to Canada. And he uh, aligns temporarily with Desjardins in their uh, war against Rizzuto. So there's, an inherent uh, American slice of this, but I'm interested in your research other than that, which as we know, if anybody's read your books, that, that was a galactic um, 
miscalculation. miscalculation from probably both sides of it. Yeah. Um, Salvatore Montaigne ends up dead. Uh, Reynard Desjardins ends up in prison for that murder. Um, but was there any other American mob bosses that were chiming in that were like sending word to people in Canada being like either what's going on or you guys need to calm down or do you, do you need our help? Um, right now the, the, the people from out of the country that, that everybody sits up and behaves around our Mexican cartel people and the, um, uh, Sinaloa cartel, um, the guy I've been talking to is in witness protection talks about how um, they they go to to Mexico and they the Hells Angels have condos there and they're um, they get tight with the cartel and the cartel also brings up people here and there was a um, oh, a murder in BC where one guy looked a Hells Angel looked like he was going to die and he's a former Montrealer Larry Amaro and then he didn't die but when it looked like he was going to die the cartel had people up here trying to figure out who who the shooters were because Amaro had a huge drug shipment and he hadn't paid for it and so they wanted to know who's going to pay for these drugs they want they didn't want to um to to lose uh, millions because um the guy who they had sort of allowed him to have the drugs kind of on credit they weren't they didn't want to get stiffed with it so um it, it's funny cuz when you talk about that um Montana thing um Vittorio Meraki who um, got into trouble on that one, and I think pled. Um, he his lawyer subpoenaed me to to um, uh, testify at his trial, and I said I won't say anything. And so I was thinking that um, I'm going to be losing some weight in jail, and <laughs> and then um, uh, then he he got a deal, and it, it all fell apart. But they were trying to um, uh, find out where information was coming from, which was kind of unique to. Um, subpoena a reporter try to get his sources um it's kind of weird too when we're talking about del balso he tried to get a peace bond against a reporter which is pretty fascinating um i have um my understanding i, I have some pretty good sourcing that when montagna well first even going back to when the old man Rizzuto was killed that the bonanno zips were having sit downs to try to figure out sort out what, how to make sense of it. Not necessarily that they were going to do anything about it, but it, it does, even though at that point the Rizzutos had officially broken off, traditionally that was yeah. Bonanno right. territory. For 40 years. Right, and then the, their boss gets whacked, right. Montagna, so that, again, I hear that um, some of the, uh, the um, Asaro, Grimaldi, some others were having sit-downs to try to sort out. And then there's the, the great quote from uh, Asaro who says, I don't know what the fuck's going on in Howard Beach. <laughs> right. How, how the hell am I going to know what's going on in Montreal? So Howard Beach has got the same language. Right. Yeah. So we know that the New Yorkers were at least monitoring it and discussing it, but I, I don't and know. And you would think you know, if, how far you know, that if, went. you know, we all in, with the OG podcast, we love playing the what if game, but you think if Messino hadn't have flipped and was still in power through the two thousands, mm-hmm. That he would have been someone that might have stepped forward, but if you think about the, you line up what was going on in the Banana organization when the Rizzuto organization started to fall apart, you had Mancuso, uh, Mikey Mancuso, who's the boss now, rising, 
he was going to jail. People were, you know, his acting bosses. He was having issues with those acting bosses. So uh, it didn't look like everybody was. It doesn't look like everybody in the Bananos was on the same page at that time. So if they can't keep their own house in order, how are you going to be paying attention to what's going on, you know, across the border? When and the cartels are playing head games with them, like they sell, if, if they sold something that's 90% purity, they might charge you a, a different rate than they charge me because they don't want anyone to rise up too high. Like they, the, the Rizzuto's made a mistake in a way by allowing the Hells Angels to rise too high and the cartels won't. Um, they don't want to be challenged. Like they all, that's why these little young groups are doing well because they'll give a spunky up and comer a, a break to just to disrupt things. They just want to sell their drugs. They don't, they, they don't, but they don't want to be challenged. They don't want anyone dictating to them. They want to be uh, the ones who, who set the tone of everything. And so they're kind of playing, playing games with everybody. Yeah. And then, but also Messino had, he, in a lot of ways, a lot of this destabilization goes back goes to back him to Messina killing killing, killing George George from Canada right because George was uh, spreading his wings if you will with backing of the guys in Montreal yeah. kind of being like we don't really need to report to you anymore we're, they were making guys uh the were making guys without the permission of Messino and that started to, to erode yeah the the relationship. Yeah, and these new up-and-coming groups, they're copying the mob guys, you know, the making people. The, um, the United Nations, they give, it sounds odd, but they give pearl bracelets when someone has done the right amount of hits and done, been efficient enough. And um, the guy I'm talking to, he said it was the happiest day of his life when he got his pearl bracelet, you know, which isn't what you expect out of a 260-pound guy, but, um, you know, to get a pearl bracelet and get all teary-eyed about it. But the... Um, they have levels too, and a lot of that is is copying what they've they've seen, you know, in in movies or what they've read, and copying the mafia really. So you've you've brought up a number of times the wolf pack, and and you know you have the the new book out, but you've talked about some of these multi ethnic gangs. So if our audience is unfamiliar with that, give us a sense of the land, underworld landscape in um, like British Columbia, which is on the west side of Canada. My understanding is it's a lot more common to see like these multi ethnic criminal partnerships, even in some cases, indigenous population. That's uh, why they're called the United Nations gang. For people that might uh, be confused, that maybe don't know the landscape in British Columbia, but when when we've said United Nations, that's literally what's the the name of their gang. Right. (laughs) And it's a (laughs) multi-ethnic organized crime syndicate. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And it's odd because um, uh, it's like we're moving into the time of the woke gangster. Like these are guys who um, they all still shoot people and brag about it but they won't use a racial slur you know the old guys used to be um pretty pretty quick with the uh ethnic slurs but they you know they had a gun that had six bullets and they didn't waste them you know they were a little more surgical and um in the early 2000s the hell's angels and the mafia were both really um really brought down or, or humbled by authorities and that created a big opening for these um uh, multi-ethnic groups that are very very good on the internet and they they went right to the source with mexico and the cartels like that because um they can manipulate them better they can pick and choose who they're going to deal with they they don't get challenged as much and they can um um, make them and break them sort of thing and so when when the hell's angels got out of prison and these mob guys um 
um, like Del Balso, got got out of prison. They they found the landscape had changed, and some of the ones from BC moved to um, the heart of Montreal and were um, you know wheeling and dealing there. And I'm guessing, you know, asking Scott and Peter here, I'm guessing that in the old days when Mom Boucher and Vito were calling the shots, that was less common for some young buck from BC to just to just roll up in Montreal and try to plant plant a flag. flag, I'm guessing that was less likely to happen. Is that, would you say that's correct? Yeah. And mom Boucher, um, a lot of hell's angels, they wouldn't say it publicly, but they weren't so crazy about the guy. Like he brought a lot of heat on them. He, he allowed anti-gang legislation to be passed. I mean, a a guy I worked with, Michelle Auger, he, um, I worked with him on a book. He got shot. Um, that's, um, that stifled the press. We we weren't criticizing tougher um, tougher anti gang laws, and so and also Mom Boucher just wasn't stable. I mean, he um, there's a feeling that um, that one guy was shot because he a reporter because he didn't like the way the guy smiled, like he had a logo picture and he didn't like the smile. So people didn't want their lives ruined by a madman, basically. And um, it, it, um, it sort of hurt the brand. It's it's odd. It, the um, Ontario has a lot of Hells Angels, but um, one of them there told me, you know, if, if it's just me and you, we can talk. But if they're guys from Quebec, don't even look at me. And there was the feeling that they're they're like your crazy cousin. You know, you're you're not comfortable with them, but you're not going to make them angry. And the Quebec ones, some of them were sent to Ontario to kind of supervise and uh, make sure things went smoothly. And it wasn't... Um, it wasn't fun and games for the Ontario guys. It was, um, they, they didn't like really being bossed around and being, they had a pretty soft life up to that point. Yeah, that's a good point that sometimes even the chapters within the same club don't necessarily see eye to eye on, on yeah. everything. And some guys shift from one to another because they don't get along with one or they, um, some are kind of older guys. And some of the old guys, when they come out of jail, they're, uh, they can't stand the internet at all, let alone um, you know the dark web and all this stuff, and the young ones are treating them like they're idiots. And so, there's a lot of this generation gap. You know, a guy from a guy who's 65 doesn't want to take orders from a guy who's 28. In some ways, it it um, it's consistent. And again, Peter, um, tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> Keep on prefacing that because I I don't consider myself an expert on this stuff, so I don't want to be uh, spreading false information, but wouldn't you say that the most, uh, you know, infamous biker murder in Canadian history was the Lennoxville massacre, and that was Hell's Angel on Hell's Angel slaughter, right? Yeah, and the one that would rival it would be the Bandito massacre in Ontario, near London, Ontario. Yeah, and that was Bandito on Bandito, right. and so um, it, you know, the guy I'm talking to, it's sort of what he said. You, you really, really get. The thing that really sets people off is betrayal. If you think that someone in your group is turning on you, you're a lot more angry than if you think if someone's trying to elbow in on your business. Like you don't like the business stuff, but if if you think I've had them into my house, I introduced them to my wife, and now they're doing this, then you're really livid. Also, they they know all your weaknesses. Got to get rid of them. So let me ask you both something this hypothesis that so not only does it seem like the, the Italian groups are more violent in Canada, but the biker groups are more violent. The the main hypothesis that I hear is the reason why is the criminal justice system that in the U S you get a murder. You, that's the worst charge you can get 
you get a murder charge. They might even give you the fucking chair. They might even give you a capital case for, for murder. And that the laws in Canada are more lenient, which, which the correlation is that guys are more trigger happy because you can whack a guy out and maybe do 10, 20 years as opposed to a life sentence in the U.S. So I wonder, Peter and then Scott, what do, what do you make of that hypothesis? Um, one thing on that one that would support it would be that um, if you hire a 16 or 17-year-old to do it, then he's going to get his record wiped clean in a little while anyway. And so, and it's not it's not being an astronaut to point a gun at someone and kill them, but it does take a certain amount of uh, skill. And so I think that's why a lot of these hits aren't being carried out now because, because they've kind of um, lowered the standard. The the wolf pack they had a guy that they paid a hundred thousand a hit, and he used to get theatrical makeup and get right into it. Um, you know, and he did do did do the job. I mean, they paid way probably twenty times more than they had to, but he did get the job done. So, what do you mean so theatrical? Theatrical makeup? Up, can like you, yeah. into, you got into a character? Yeah. Can you can you can you expand on that one? Uh, you know those little plastic things that they put on their faces, like the Shakespearean type of actors to make their nose big or whatever. Oh, yeah, he, yeah. He had that. He did a hit in um, in a, a very built-up part of Toronto where a guy was watching a soccer game um, in an outdoor patio, and he he had on a wig, he had on a false face. He um, uh, he went right to town on it, and he um, like he he actually kind of got off on putting on the makeup and. And he walked right up to the guy and shot him. Like the guy had no clue who was who was approaching him. And it was a soccer game, so everybody was staring at the screen. It was pretty easy to get close to the guy. Wow. Um, and then he, um, then he, it's sort of odd because he visited his grandmother, and then he went back to, back to, BC. Um, but that's that's the new ones who are. I mean, he was getting a hundred thousand a hit, and that's what he sort of did for a career. Um, if you're going to pay. 5,000, 4,000 to a 17-year-old year, the person might be shooting in one direction and running in the other direction. Yeah, that that's the point of contracting out because usually old school Cosa Nostra, you just tell, you just tell a guy, you push a button and yeah, that's you, it. You ain't you paying pay, any money. You don't pay him. That's right. part of the, it goes along with the right. job that you've signed job up for. Yeah. Right. Well, and this guy, Ralph Samar, he considered Frank Petroni like his um, father or uncle, like he thought um, there's nothing better than you know, that guy hugging him and saying he's proud of him. I mean, he really looked for that sort of thing. And so it was an emotional thing to get close to the boss. These other ones, they they wouldn't be able to spell the boss's name, let alone know what exactly they do. So so we, we mentioned the Wolfpack. That's your latest book. Tell us about the Wolfpack. Is that is that, would you say it's more of a network as opposed to a formal organization? To, explain to our audience what, what that is. Yeah, it's like an association, and it brings in what they consider the necessary parts. And they, um, uh, when there's no one at the top, then you have to make friends and alliances. And so when there isn't a pyramid, you have to reach out a lot more. And that's what this is. And so um, it's very multi-ethnic and it's very non-racist, which means um, like the Hells Angels, you had to be white. Uh, these guys... Um, they're more going by who can get things done, who has power, and the it's connected through the internet rather than geography, and so people can be anywhere and they can move, and it's not a big deal. Like they can 
um, one family popped up in three different provinces, and it didn't really matter. Um, they also they can they can just take off, um, you know, internationally, and so it it gives them a lot wider scope. I mean, one of the things I was actually talking to someone yesterday about it from Australia is that if you can get drugs in, into Australia, you're going to make a bundle because um, everything's more expensive there. And so they can work these markets that um, they, it's not just like the neighborhood store. They can they can look pretty um, pretty far afield to where they're going to make the most money. It's very, very young, very violent, and um, uh, kind of needy. You know, like they, they sort of need to be in the gang. And there's... Um, uh, no one's the the biggest person in this is a guy named Robbie Alcalil, but that's not through a title. Even the name, the Wolfpack, um, I had to decide how to spell it because they were spelling it two different ways, and so I I went by what was on their jewelry, which was one word. But they, it's not like they have all these big codes of conduct and everything. It's um, it's it's a lot more fly by the seat of their pants. But the money is huge and the violence is huge, and they, it's like an association, and so. If you're um, uh, some one of the Rizzuto guys got in with them, um, um, Caputo, just because um, they are efficient, they will get the drugs into the country, and they, then you get them off to your distribution group. Yeah, that's my understanding from your book is that there's actually other d- dudes from other organizations that are also part of this Wolfpack Association, including a big Hell's Angels guy, and then including some of the Italians. Is that and a, and a West End guy? Oh, uh, oh, Irish, Irish mob. Irish mob. Yeah, yeah, wheels, Maloney. Yeah, is that, is that correct, Peter? Am I reading that correctly? Got it right, and and that's right about the um, wheels, Maloney, the um, West End gang, gang guy in the wheelchair, and there there might even be um, a woman. I mean, the guy I'm talking to now talks about a a woman who shot somebody who just got on the elevator with him and shot him, you know, between floors. Well, this is the woke, yeah, woke mob. The woke mob. They Equal use women hit men. Equal opportunity. <laughs> hit women. Yeah. Um, and so I know we've been jumping all around, but we're just, it's just, we're, it's really exciting talking about talking to an expert about Canadian OC and trying to make sense of it. Um, back on the, the, the British Columbia, though, is that where the Wolfpack, is that where they started, though, on the west side of the country? Yeah. And there's a, a kind of a suburb of, um, of Vancouver called Surrey, and then there's a neighborhood in Surrey called Wally, and that would be um, a lot of them could trace their their beginnings to there. And the um, guy I'm talking to, he he lived like one high rise away from Robbie Alcalio when he was growing up, and so there's um, uh, they they know each other, and there's a lot of um, crossover and and old grudges. There's also um, not from Al Khalil, but with some of them, there's a fair bit of drug use. Like it's, um, you heard of Vito Rizzuto drinking wine, but you never heard of him using using drugs. Um, with these guys, there's a, um, a pretty fair opiate problem, and so that makes them more violent. More um, the guy I'm talking to now, now that he's off drugs, he's shocked at the things he did when he was on drugs. And are the uh, triads active in British Columbia? The Chinese organized crime groups. They all the guys into, and so there's a like they don't have them all the way, but they'll have a little bit. Like if you're in a triad and you're smart, then why not um, back the source too? Like if they can get the drugs in for you, why not? And so they would, they would. There's one kind of massage parlor place they went to that was triad run that the 
guy running it who looked like the towel boy was actually a very big deal, like extremely big deal in real estate, but they didn't know. But they, there's a lot of odd little crossovers and um, um, kind of kids who grew up together in the same neighborhood and then they went off to different groups. It's, it's sort of like if you played football with someone and then you went off to play for a different team. You know, you you still have something in common. What, what ethnicity is Al Khalil? Um, he's a Palestinian. He um, considered stateless. Now he um, had five. There were five boys, and um, three of the boys were murdered. The other one's a fugitive as well. And he uh, he just you don't joke around with him. There was one um, interesting conversation where someone suggested that someone working for Al. Al Khalil said, you don't even joke like that. And if he, yeah, I thought he was, he'd be dead. And if you joke around like this, you know, you could be too. Like, like, like he's, um, he's only 435 and he's doing big, big things in his late twenties, but, um, but he's the youngest of five brothers. And so he, and one of his brothers was uh, murdered in Mexico. Um, so they, they were, they got in with cartels and, and they're they're just not afraid to move move around. When he got arrested for one murder in Toronto, he was in Greece. Like he'd have multiple passports, and he um, he walked out walked out of uh, maximum security, um, awaiting trial for murder. Um, walked out under the cameras in a uniform, and who knows how they got the uniform in? Who knows how he knew where to stand? Um, but that was last July, and they still haven't arrested anybody for it. I mean, he, you're not even supposed to know who the contractors are in the jail, and they were dressed up as them, and they showed up to do a job, and um, the job was to walk Al Khalil out, and it's kind of amazing, because you have to be buzzed from from hallway to hallway, and it's all under cameras, and he went right out the front door. He, he would have been out of the country before they announced it, and the picture they put of, or pictures they put up of the suspects who broke them, out were false pictures. They were just stock images from the internet. They weren't the guys who got them out. And so it's just next level organization. Uh, what's the political fallback? I mean, it, it, I mean, are people outraged there? I mean, it, it strikes me as either Keystone cops or corruption in terms of how that can happen. Um, there's, there's big cases that are falling apart because the um, uh, Canadians are, it's sort of odd because we're really, really big on the civil liberties. So we get really outraged when police um, use faulty information to get a wiretap. But then that, um, on the other hand, um, that means that these guys can can go free more. So we had a, a record drug case that fell apart um, last month. And it was uh, huge where they got like $61 million in drugs. We had a couple of years ago, a record gambling case that fell apart again. and um, one of them, they were listening in on wiretaps and they picked up someone talking to his lawyer and that's when you should just shut off your recording and instead it looked like, or there was the feeling that they they didn't. And um, um, it's it's an odd one so that the public outrage, some of it's more the police for breaking the rules even when they don't catch the guys. So the police are getting sort of double outrage. Are, are you... Um... I know, again, I, Jimmy already mentioned this, that we're jumping all over the place, but uh, a mind uh, such as yours, uh, it, you know, 
deserves to be picked by people like <laughs> us. Um, <laughs> well, what do you make of what's going on in Hamilton? So, you know, the, this war started in, in Montreal, Quebec uh, in the 2000s, and then by the mid to late 2010s, it made its way into Ontario, and you had the two uh, biggest bosses of, of the Hamilton Mafia, the Musitano brothers, assassinated within a year of each other. Yeah, that's a funny one because I actually um, I got to had quite a few interactions with that family, and um, Pat was um, very, very bad-tempered, and he um, uh, once he said, thank God your mother loves you because nobody else does. Like he, he had a real real anger problem. He, um, um, the, their problem is they there's certain people they just can't blend with, like the Rizzutos when they killed the Violi brothers, the the women in the family were so upset. It was such a um, deep, horrible thing for them that they can't they can't just start working with you know with with that group. Um, Hamilton is kind of a training ground too for a lot of criminals. Like one of the guys when we're talking about the Wolfpack, their big rivals were the United Nations, and there was a a guy from from Hamilton who worked with the mob who went off and off to BC and worked for the United Nations. He's since died, but he was. Um, you know, one of the big muscle guys in Hamilton, and he was a suspect in the murder of a lawyer and her husband. And so um, Hamilton is always proudly not Toronto. Like, they're proud that um, they kind of make their own rules. They, they're they also right on a, a great drug pipeline. Like, if you're bringing up drugs through the Niagara region into Toronto, Hamilton's there. And so... Um, uh, it's a good transportation city. It's, it's got a, there's a lot more to it than like the Violis are a big deal in the past. But um, there's also a guy Walter Stadnick who uh, Hell's, Angel. Hell's Angels had yeah. a Canadian yeah if they had a Canadian president it would have been him and he's extremely smart and he he just doesn't talk like I he, nobody even knows how he got his nickname his nickname yeah, Nergit Nergit yeah yeah nobody knows what Nergit means like it. It might be that he mumbles, or it might be what you get when you boil syrup down and you get a little nugget. You know, it might be nugget, um, but he won't tell anybody that. And I sat about uh, maybe five feet from him in a, you know, when he was charged with, I think, 13 murder conspiracies, and he he looked extremely relaxed. Like, And he actually knew the name of the sketch artist like the, who we were hiring. He knew her name or his name, and he called the guy over and checked out the picture. But he, he's a very he's a, he's an odd character because he's very very calm and he's I think five four maybe five five he um, the only person who's really threatened him was a a priest who ran a red red light during a papal visit and crashed into him and he, otherwise he's he's kind of one of these um, untouchable people and it's sort of odd because you don't know if he's retired or if he's just um, way in the background but he's a very very bright guy and. For some reason, he was a big, big force in Quebec, even though he didn't speak French much. I asked someone in Quebec, how did he run things when he didn't speak French? And the guy said he didn't speak much English either. Like he just didn't speak. <laughs> <laughs> he just waved his hands around and pointed. That's smart. <laughs> that's that's yeah. smart. Um, Scott asked about Hamilton. I, I get confused, and, and uh, someone on social media is probably going to yell at me about this. Um, I get confused. The the Musitanos are 
their own crime family with connections to Calabria. They're not Cosa Nostra. Is that correct? Um, definitely. They'd be in Drangheta, and yeah. then they're not. And they, there was Dominique, and there was Tony, and then the then the two kids. And um, I actually knew Tony quite well and got along with him, which is kind of an odd thing because Tony would talk to me when Pat was screaming at me. And um, it was an odd thing, but it wasn't um, as cohesive as you, you might think from the outside. And Tony was um, about 20 years younger than the parent of, than the father of Pat and, um, and Angelo. And he, he, he wasn't going to say anything publicly against them, but he didn't like their way of doing things. He, he married a woman who ran for city council and she wanted to get on the police services board, which is how I met him. Like I, I said, I'll interview her if you bring Tony along. And then, um, wow. and then, I started talking to Tony, and he had a pretty good sense of humor, and he could interview, he could imitate Robert De Niro and analyze this, analyze that, which was actually pretty funny. Tony was kind of a, it's a different character, and he he moved off to Peru, I think, just to get away from from all the Canadian craziness. And then the daughter of his housekeeper was kidnapped by some sort of guerrillas, and somehow he worked with police to get the kid back, and um, um. It, it was an odd sort of thing because he he was able to work with authorities when he thought it was a a real reason. He he went to he went to prison for a murder conspiracy, but he um, and he wouldn't talk about that. But he he talked a fair bit about um, growing up in the fifties and that there was such an anti-Italian feeling, and he was a little guy, and so you had to be part of something tough. But he he didn't want the um, big money, big craziness of his nephews. And I, I think also if he was going to be a gangster, he was going to be a smarter gangster. He wasn't going to be screaming at people all the time. For people that aren't familiar with Canada, Hamilton is like Detroit or Pittsburgh or Cleveland. Rust it's, belt. it's a rust belt, working class, uh, a lot of uh, ethnic melting pot. Uh, like I think um, Peter said earlier in, in you know, probably 15, 20 minutes ago that, that they're proud that they're not Toronto. Toronto's like more cosmopolitan and we're we're okay being the, the, the tough guys, the, the hard scrabble, uh, you know, other side of the, of the tracks. Yeah. Yeah. And when Hamilton plays Toronto in football up here, you know, that's the game that matters. They want to beat up Toronto. Everybody else is (laughs) sort of optional, but you've got to beat Toronto. Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, uh, it's taken pretty seriously, like because it, it's sort of suburb, 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 and then Hamilton, and then Hamilton um, definitely wants to. It doesn't consider itself part of Toronto at all, even though they're both Ontario, right? And they're the same province, yep. right. and and so, but there are. It gets confusing because you got Musitano who are connected to the Calabrians, but you do have Cosa Nostra guys in Hamilton right, too. Well, you had uh, Johnny Violi, Pop, right, and Johnny Pops, right, who was a Buffalo yeah, guy, it, right. Who got killed by the yeah, Musitanos. Was a, <laughs> right. Yeah, and he was a real classic one. He, um, I, I went once to a key, it's sort of odd because he was born and died on pretty much the same street. And uh, once I went in to talk to him about something, and I mean, it wasn't like there was some big introduction. I just thought I'll give it a try. And um, he said, take a walkie parasite. And <laughs> it sounded like, like he walked onto a movie set. It's like, you're, you're looking around for the camera. Like, like that's the way he talked. Like he um, talked like a gangster and the rest of his family was um, 
just you know not really that rough but he he did um some rough time in in prison in the states and he um um he's like the opposite of the wolf pack if you in hamilton if you say railway street people think you're talking about john Papalia. like real if you say railway street says that means john Papalia of the wolf pack nobody knows where robbie alcohol lives and it doesn't even really matter and and the Lapinos are are they still they were in, they were yeah. Cosa Nostra and they too, were right? ma- and they were married into Violi one of the families. Yeah, they were married into um, to the Violis, and so there you had um, and that's that woman I was talking about who was so upset when I was speaking once. So her her dad was the big family. It was a big deal for Violi, her husband, to marry into that family, and then he killed, and she has to go back and live with them. And they were a huge court case because the uh, police put um, listening devices in the tomato plants of the old guy, Giacomo Lupino, and they caught him um, talking about um, hockey and kids today and organized crime. And that's how um, police and prosecutors were able to convince people that this stuff actually exists. Like it was, um, he was talking about, um, you know, with Buffalo getting along with Megadino and what it, he, um, his conversations when he'd walk around with people with his tomato plants um, really helped a lot. And it was a, a working class, but not flashy part of town. It was, um, it was on the kind of the, um, the industrial side of town, but you know, nice house, but nothing to stop and share at. So doing the what, playing the what if game again, let me ask you this. If, the Rizzuto crime family doesn't implode. Are the Musitanos still alive today in the spring of 2023? No, they're they're out of it now. Um, the um, power coming from Hamilton, um, it's pretty dormant. And Walter Stadnick hasn't been seen for a while. So, I mean, maybe he's just had enough of it. Like, he, he got sent to prison for quite a while, even though he wasn't really, it was just, guys around him talking and so maybe he's just had enough um i i think um well i guess what i'm saying is was the were the risotto was the risotto crime empire in some ways shielding or protecting the musitano brothers and then once the that the you know once rome had had burned did that leave the musitanos exposed oh, yeah. for these people to come and attack them in the late 2010s um, I think some of it too was just that Pat's temper was just um it just made him an easy target. It also made people afraid of him. Like he um sort of that paranoia will destroy you thing. Um Pat um he had either two or three murders and he if he got mad at you you really had to take it seriously. When he was um angry at me it wasn't something I took lightly and I, I actually got a a razor blade and a, and a crazy letter in all caps sent to the newsroom um, when he was mad at me. Like he, um, he was the sort of guy who he had the feeling he got mad at a lot of people in a working day, and so sooner or later one of them's going to come back and shoot him. Um, well, I had a I had a Godfather uh, Jack Toko um, from Detroit uh, take a, a meeting with all of his nephews and grandsons <laughs> around Christmas time, and he dispatched them to all the borders and Barnes and Nobles around Detroit, around Detroit to take my book and hide it. <laughs> yeah, which is better than him, you know, sending a letter to my newsroom with the the razor blade. So Someone, I'll take that. There was a bookstore; it's not there anymore. New Horizons. They 
they someone went in there and gave them a hard and time. Bon, no, and Bomberitos, Jack Toco yeah. went to the owner of which is a bakery around here, Bomberitos. And when you're waiting for your baked goods, you can read like books. Yeah, they have and they had books. my book there, which had a picture of Jack Toco's dad on the cover. And one day it wasn't there anymore. And I went to the, I went to the, uh, I didn't tell them who I was, but I was like, why don't you have that book anymore? And he said, oh, a long time patron of ours came in and asked us if we do him a favor to remove it. I said, who was that patron? They said, Jack Toko. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. That, that's a great bakery on yeah. that side of town. Um, so before we wrap up, Peter, uh, I think we need to acknowledge that business or blood became a well-known television show. So congratulations on that. The dream. Um, He's living the dream, and I recommend it. Yeah, uh, I give it four stars. If you're someone that's into um, OC and the mob, uh, Bad Blood, you can get it on FX, I believe. Uh, I, I would guess some of the other streaming networks, you'd be able to get it. Uh, Anthony LaPaglia. Oh, we lost him. Um, Kim, um, Kim Coates from, from Sons. Sons of Anarchy. Paul Sorvino before he died. It's a retelling of, of a lot of this stuff that we've talked about today and the war that broke out within the Rizzuto crime family. And they, they take some, you know, some dramatic license. But I, I think as a, as a general rule, it, I think this, this to me, uh, passes the test with fi- flying colors in terms of a good adaptation of an organized crime story because it can be a real crapshoot. I've, I've lived it. I've experienced it. Um, firsthand with, with um, my white boy Rick project that went to Hollywood and, and got all um, got all messed up and, and you don't get a second bite at the apple and uh, you're lucky you have something to look back on and be proud of. And I, I recommend all of our our audience to uh, go stream it. Oh, thanks. And I, the guy who deserves the real credit is the guy named Michael Conyves who uh, put it together as a showrunner. I had no idea what they were and why they got paid yes. more than everybody else, but now I do. I mean, this um, it's amazing how he was essential and um, everybody else was, was in the background, really. Did, let me ask you just to get in the weeds here because about your experiences, because I know, sorry to open up uh, <laughs> some old wounds yeah. here, Scott, but I know like on the White Boy Rick project, the, the director tried to marginalize Scott and anybody like in terms of like the I was historical hu- accuracy. Well, I, was hu- I was hired by Sony, the studio. Yeah. The director was hired by the production company. So it became this, this tug of war between the studio and the production company, which was making the film. And I was for all intents and purposes, I was kind of kicked off set <laughs> because they were bothered by the fact that, I was told by Sony to give them notes on historical accuracy. I'm, I'm guessing and I'm hoping for your sake, when they were shooting Bad Blood, you had a, a much more inclusive yeah. uh, relationship yeah. with Did the makers ever, of, of that right. project. Did you have a better experience, in other words, Peter? Yeah, and part of it was that I, um, I took a run at screenwriting and realized that's not what I do. Like, it's sort of like if you're a soccer player and you decide you're going to go play um, um, hockey, it's not the same thing. And so I, I knew my role, and my role was um, consulting, making it real, telling them a real situation that they could draw from. And um, this guy, Michael Kanye, he um, he looked like a surgeon, but it looked like, um, you know, when he was focused, he was like super focused. And um, I, I was lucky because we had a way smaller group than what you're describing. We had um, 
one big producer, one big writer, and then and we all kind of huddled and uh, and agreed on what we should be doing. And so there was a real agreement before we got rolling at all what we were doing. And so there wasn't there weren't those big decisions you're talking about that was all washed out before. Yeah, that sounds. I had another <laughs> experience. Like, yeah, I had another experience like that where someone, the producer at the start, said, "What can't you lose? What can you lose?" And um, you know, there's seven siblings. I said, "I don't care if it drops to three, but we can't have their motivation different." And like the the real things that you're not bendable on, they got those, they identified those quickly and worked around it. So that that was that's sort of what I look for now. Like it's um, it's so easy for things to blow up. I just have a, I have a really high bar for these type of you know true crime stories that I learn about and research, and if I, and I'm going to sit uh, in a movie theater or in in the in the case of Bad Blood, uh, you know, go to my television and stream it. You know, I, I'm gonna I'm a tough critic, and I think that Bad Blood um, did the story justice. And yes, uh, for for people that haven't watched it. Uh, Kim Coates from Sons of Anarchy is kind of, you kind of see the story through his eyes and he's the tell me if I'm again, correct me if I'm wrong. He's kind of a composite. He's kind of Desjardins, but not quite Desjardins. Exactly. You, you read it perfectly. Exactly. Yeah. And he and his background is, is a Shakespearean actor, believe it or not, before Sons of Anarchy. Oh, he's great. He and makes so, it. Yeah. He makes it yeah. great. And he. Yeah, and he wasn't shy about um, about things like you. Uh, he was great. He was a really, really smart find. And um, but when Paul Servino was there for a little bit, um, Kim Coates made sure that everybody was had their brought their a game when Paul Servino was there because he didn't want the um, the older guy to have to work too hard and have to do more multiple takes. And so Kim Coates he kind of ruled the roost in a way. And get the right person, you know, show him some respect, and everybody really did. I like that. So Servino's like the Don. Yeah, <laughs> he's the OG. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. that's a huge get for that. Yeah, yeah uh, that for was, that project. That was you know, that that was cool. So any 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 news on the Wolfpack? Can we expect to see that on TV or film uh, anytime soon? Or are you not at liberty to discuss that, Peter? Um, there's stuff that I hope I'm at liberty to talk about soon because, um, uh, I mean that's. There's so I, I mean definitely that's where things aim. It's just um, uh, my agent's kind of my manager and kind of my boss. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. No, I, I, understand. I believe me. I, yeah, I understand it. But we're we're uh, your biggest fans here, and we want to see more Peter Edwards adaptations uh, of of true crime stories in Canada that make it to either the big screen, big screen, or the or the streaming services, because um, you are. Uh, an amazing storyteller, and it really was Peter. I'm not. Um, I'm not just saying this because you're you're on the uh, on the show, and this is really the first time we've ever spoken in person. Um, but authors like yourself and Antonio uh, that that wrote um, Business or Blood, uh, you guys and and some of your colleagues, you know, here in America that were writing in the in the 80s and 90s and into the 2000s. I got my start in the late 2000s with my first book came out in 07. But uh, it was really reading guys like you that inspired me that put me on this on this track of telling stories from the uh, from the underworld and and giving it perspective and insight that you probably won't get in a in a small little uh, 
uh, you know, mentioned on a, on a television news broadcast or a, a small uh, article in a newspaper. So I, I think uh, I thank you. I really appreciate that. And let's stay in touch. Like, yeah, I believe we could work together on something. Yes. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, thank you for your time, Peter. Please, our audience, check out the Wolfpack. Check out Business or Blood. Check out Peter's other work. Uh, you can find uh, you know his work on the internet as well. Uh, please subscribe to our stuff. Follow us. Uh, Peter, thank you again for your time. Uh, for Jimmy Bucciolato. Scott Bernstein. Scott Bernstein, we're out. <laughs>